All right, good morning, church. I was telling Leah as I was kind of prepping the sermon this week and looking at things, I was like, man, I, I feel like I need to send Chris a thank you card for giving me one of the easier uh, one of the easier visions here. Like, it just kind of worked out that way. Um, yeah, it was just kind of a... As we look at Zechariah 3 today, we're going to see that it's like, oh, this one's less confusing than the visions we saw in Zechariah 2. Oh, I like that. That's nice. That's a... Um, as, as we're kind of entering into some things that are, are complicated, this one's a little less confusing for us. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Zechariah chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible, that's fine. It'll be up on the screen and you can follow it there. Um, we are in Zechariah chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. Let's go ahead and hear the word of the Lord. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you in, with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, everyone of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for even challenging passages of, of prophecy in the Old Testament that are Sometimes difficult for us to understand what's happening and how it's working out. Pray, Lord, that as we go into this time of, of hearing your word and responding to your, your word, that you would speak to our hearts, you would give us clarity, uh, that you would give us wisdom and understanding. Father, I pray that, that you would just put me aside and it, and it be you today and your word proclaimed. Father, I pray that as we, we see what, what we see here in Scripture, that, that it becomes evident to us what we need to do and how we need to repent and seek you above all else. Father, I pray that as a, as a body of believers that we can be a light into this community, a light carrying the truth of your word. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So do you ever watch courtroom dramas? You know, Perry Mason, L.A. Law, my personal favorite, Night Court, right? Good, solid, courtroom dramas, right? These, these courtroom shows. This is what we have here. This, 
this, this fourth vision of Zechariah is, is kind of a courtroom drama. It's set in this heavenly courtroom with an angel of the Lord seated as judge. Joshua the high priest is, is kind of the defendant. And Satan is, is the prosecuting attorney in this particular case. And Joshua as the defendant not represents, represents not just himself, but he's also representing all of these returned exiles as, as, as the high priest would represent all of the people of Israel. Now it's interesting because as we start out here, we, we got this courtroom scene. Um, Zechariah is amongst the gallery, I guess, of, of folks watching all of this. And we don't really hear any courtroom banter between the defendant and the prosecutor. We only hear what the angel of the Lord has to say. And immediately we see the accuser, the prosecuting attorney, Satan, being rebuked. Right? Just immediately. I... The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Just like, boom. Like, no opening arguments. No, no, how do you plead? No, nothing. Just, bam, the judge rebukes the prosecutor. Instantly. The angel of the Lord brings a rebuke from the Lord to Satan. And it says that Joshua is covered in filthy clothes. Now this isn't dirty like we think about dirty clothes today. This isn't like he's worn his jeans a couple times that week. It's probably time to, to get him through the rinse. Or it's not like he's um, just got some, some sweat or whatever in him. This is really dirty. There's, there's a little bit of euphemism here at play. It's implied in the Hebrew that, that Joshua's clothes are not just dirty, but they're actually covered in excrement as well as human sweat and dirt and grime. And he's, he's filthy upon filthy. The clothes are defiled, but not only are the clothes defiled, the one who is wearing them has become defiled because of how dirty the clothes are. And this is a big problem for Joshua. This is a big problem for not just Joshua, but a big problem for Israel. Because if Joshua, who is the high priest, is defiled, then there's, there's a problem because Joshua serves as the intermediary, the go-between for people and God. And if Joshua is defiled, then the people have no way for their defilement to be removed on the Day of Atonement. There's no way, if the one who is their intermediary is defiled, there's no way for the people to have their defilement removed. This is a problem. So it appears that if we're looking at this courtroom case, and Satan is the prosecutor bringing charges against Joshua, the high priest, before the judge who is the angel of the Lord, it would appear that Satan has a very strong case. Joshua is standing in front of the judge, the angel of the Lord, covered in filth. It would be evident to everyone in the courtroom 
of the guilt of Joshua here. But go back. Remember that rebuke. See, there was no courtroom banter between the defendant and the prosecutor. There was no conversation between the judge and the prosecutor here. There's nothing like that. Why? Because the Lord didn't allow Satan to even speak. Before anything was said, before anything was brought up, before anything was mentioned, the Lord cut off Satan. And then what the Lord did is amazing. See, the Lord has dismissed all the charges and has made all the evidence inadmissible before Satan even had a chance to bring him up. It's done. In that rebuke, the Lord says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? See, God is is reminding Satan that he has chosen Joshua and God has chosen Jerusalem. They have been brought safely out of the exile and therefore Joshua is free from any condemnation. Effectively, God is saying, Joshua is mine to purify, not yours to condemn. And then the Lord does just that. In that just, just after that rebuke, right? Now Joshua was standing before the angel in verse 3, clothed in filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. He begins that process. He begins to cleanse and purify Joshua right there in front of Satan and the rest of the court. The servants of the Lord remove the filthy garments from Joshua. Then they clothe them in these new pure vestments. He was now robed in the garments that are, that are fit to stand before the king of kings and the judge of all creation. And right there, God changed Joshua. Joshua stood before him guilty. And the evidence was clear. The evidence was present. But God in his divine, wise, gracious, merciful sovereignty changed Joshua. Joshua did nothing. He just stood there, probably going, what's going on? But God cleansed him. He took those old, dirty garments, he took them off and removed them. And when he removed them, he removed any evidence of iniquity in Joshua. Pulled it away. But but there's more than just removing that iniquity. There's more than just removing that dirtiness. God then clothed Joshua in pure vestments. It is God. It is God who covers Joshua in righteousness. It is God who imputes righteousness to Joshua. It is God who who gives that righteousness to him. Joshua contributed nothing to this process. It is in God's matchless grace that he saw fit to not just purify Joshua, but to make Joshua righteous before himself. It's interesting, because Zechariah is standing in the courtroom of the Lord, and he's seeing all of this, and he makes this request, right? He asks God to place a new turban on Joshua's head. 
And God grants this request. Now, like I can't imagine us in an American courtroom setting seeing a judge kind of wiping away charges, dismissing a case, doing all of that we're already seeing, and then someone from the gallery saying, Hey, judge, why don't you give him a new hat too? Right? I just, I don't, that's not how it works. But Zechariah makes that request, and God grants this request. And it's so weird to see that. But what Zechariah is asking here is not just for a new hat. He's asking for the process of this righteousness, this purification, all of this to be made complete. The turban placed on Joshua's head completed the ceremonial vestments of the high priest of the nation of Israel. It completed all of the ceremonial duds, I guess if you would, that that the high priest needed to stand before God in the temple on the Day of Atonement to make the sacrifices of atonement on behalf of all of Israel. And in some regards, this kind of placing the the turban on Joshua's head is almost kind of like a a, a coronation or an, an anointment kind of situation. It shows that God is is placing authority on Joshua and has accepted him and he's accepted the people that Joshua represents. Now, I'm going to pause just a second here. Because as we get to this and we see what's taking place in just this little bit of Scripture here, what it looks like that we see here is something called a Christophany. That's a $3 theological word. It means uh, an appearance of Jesus, not in physical body, or an appearance of Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. Okay? And, and it looks like this. Um, many theologians attribute that phrase, angel of the Lord, and any of those references we see in the Old Testament as God the Son appearing prior to Jesus' incarnation. We know that there are three people in the Trinity, the triune God that we serve. Our God is so big that he's three in one. This is an appearance of two of those people in the Godhead. So so Zechariah's courtroom appearance vision is is kind of one of these times. And, And it makes some sense to see this as a pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord is sitting in judgment of Joshua and the people. This is a, a privilege and a responsibility that God the Father gives to Christ the Son. He does not give the authority to sit in judgment to the angels. We see that nowhere in Scripture. The angel of the Lord is the one who cleanses Joshua and removes his iniquities. Something God the Son, Jesus does in his work of salvation. It's the angel of the Lord who clothes Joshua in righteousness and accepts him as one of his own. Again, this is what the work of Christ on the cross does for us today. It's not our works, but it's his to make us clean and righteous before God the Father. 
Now, now I point these out as, as, as a good reminder that our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, is eternal from before time began. And His plan of salvation has been at work since, since the beginning of the world. The beginning of time, that, that plan of salvation is there. It is His work that brought the believers of the Old Testament to salvation, just as much as it is His work that brings believers to salvation today. What we see in this, this courtroom vision uh, is a display of the gospel. A humble yet clearly guilty individual is standing before a holy and righteous judge who has mercy and shows grace by not just declaring the defendant not guilty at the end of the trial, but by dismissing the charges and then elevating the defendant to righteousness before the trial even really began. This is exactly what Jesus does on our behalf. When we repent and surrender our lives to Jesus, he removes all the filth that our sin had caused us to be covered in to be covered with. And then he makes us new creatures and he gives us his righteousness, not our own. And salvation is not just salvation from sin. It is salvation for the glory of God. As the high priest Joshua is made clean here and he's saved from his iniquities and he's saved from the iniquities of, his, of the people and he is charged then with a task that will glorify God. And with that task, he is also granted a promise. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge in my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. God commands Joshua here to walk in my ways and to keep my charge. Be faithful to the covenant of the Lord. Joshua, show yourself to be a true follower of God by, by living in a way that pleases God and, and a way that glorifies God. And Joshua, if you do these things, God promises that you will rule my house and charge, have charge in my courts. God is promising Joshua that he will be responsible for true and undefiled worship within the temple. But Joshua will also have right of access among those who are standing here. That, that not only is he going to have some, some big responsibilities that are going to glorify God, he's going to have a blessing and a promise. He's going to have restored communion with God. And not just restored communion between Joshua and God, but restored communion with the people and God. And, and that's beautiful because with this restored communion, the Lord will no longer be silent and he'll no longer be distant from the people anymore. See, the people now have this, this divine attentiveness from the Lord. This is one of those foreshadows that we see in the Old Testament often. And it's a foreshadow of greater things to come. Joshua and the other priests, they're this sign, this, this symbol, this emblem. The fact that they will, 
they still exist after the exile is, is an indication that, that God is committed to blessing his people. The fact that they made it through the exile and they still have the word, they still have the priests, they still understand how to come back to worship. God is committed to blessing his people. And this future that God is promising out to them, this is something even bigger and better than the blessing that Joshua, Zerubbabel, and Zechariah are seeing during their time. God is going to send his servant the branch, he says in verse 9, or verse 8 and 9. Now the branches is something that's mentioned back in Jeremiah 23, 5, where Jeremiah is, is proclaiming and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That branch is the promised Messiah who will reign with justice and establish salvation for his people. Jesus is the branch. And then in verse 9, we continue seeing that prophecy kind of coming on and a, and a stone is mentioned, some sort of gemstone or a jewel of some sorts. And it seems to be on, on this priestly turban that was placed on Joshua's head. And it has seven eyes or, or seven facets of some sort and an inscription. Now, we really have no, no reference here as to what this inscription would be. We have no kind of knowledge. It doesn't tell us here in Zechariah. We do have some reference, though, to something like this from Aaron, Moses' brother, who was the first high priest way back in the Exodus. And he had a similar jewel and an inscription on his turban. And the inscription on his turban in that jewel said, Holy to the Lord. That inscription let the people know that Aaron, as priest, would bear the iniquity of the people. And Joshua, like Aaron, being a member of the priestly line, will also bear the iniquity of the people. But the branch who is to come will bear the iniquity of God's people too. But the branch removes the iniquity. And the people will have iniquity no more. The sin is gone through the branch. The branch restores the people and restores the land, bringing about a peace and prosperity that comes only from God. And I like verse 10, in, in that day the Lord decla declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Kind of a, a, an allusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, that kind of allusion that the gospel is going to be carried out and Gentiles will be coming under the fold and that Jesus will bring all the nations in. We see this and we look at it and go, well, what, what does this mean for us? What do we see here as we read Zechariah chapter 3? Well, we should see that there's clearly judgment for sin. Right? Joshua the high priest, a godly good man, standing before a judge in a courtroom to be condemned for sin, right? We will stand before a holy and just God and be judged for our sin against him. The evidence is clear that we are guilty before a holy and just God. We see that. 
we also can see that Satan wants us to feel hopelessness in our sin and our guilt. He is the great accuser. This is what he does. Right? He accuses people and he opposes believers day and night before God. He uses our guilt as a weapon against us to make us feel hopeless and guilty in our sin. He does not want us to try to get close to God. And so he's wanting that guilt to make us think that we cannot approach God because of our guilt, because of our sin. He's holding that against us. And while Satan wants us to feel hopeless, I hope that we see through this passage that God wants us to feel sorrow about our sin or our guilt. Now, this isn't about God wanting us to be miserable and want us to be wallowing in our sin and wallowing in our guilt. He doesn't want us to be sad all the time. No, sorrow has a good point in our lives. God uses the sorrow here that we feel to help turn us from our sin. Verse 2 of this passage. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Who has chosen Jer- the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Verse 2 should remind us that we are, who are in Christ have been chosen by God. Yeah, sure, we still feel bad about our sin, and we should. But God loves us too much to allow us to continue to sin and feel good about it. Think about that. The love there is that you sin, you shouldn't feel good because I love you, and I don't want you to feel good about doing bad things. Genuine guilt is kind of a blessing from God. That feels awkward to think guilt is a blessing, but it is a blessing because God wants us to know that when we sin, something is wrong and we need to seek him to make it right. God's guilt that he puts in our hearts, true godly guilt, should not lead to hopelessness and shame. It should lead us back into the arms of a loving God who is willing to forgive and willing to restore. I remember those moments in my own life as a kid growing up and like I botched it. Something horrible went on. And it was just easier, I learned eventually, to just go to mom and dad and say, look, I screwed up. I did not do this right. Help me solve this problem. And there was love there in that here I'm guilty about something I know I did wrong. But there was love there from them to help restore that and fix it. God is a father of the same caliber, even more so. He does the same thing. Our guilt should bring us to him saying, I have done wrong, help me fix it. And he is good and faithful and just to do just that. The other thing we see in this passage is that Satan wants us to feel innocent when we are guilty, he's a liar. He's the king of all liars. And one of the biggest lies that he says is that our guilt isn't real. Right? You're not as bad as someone else, so you can't be guilty of that. See, the standard that we are held accountable to is not what the Joneses are out there doing. 
The standard by which we are held accountable is what the word of the Lord says. Joshua, with Satan at his right hand, stands before the judge in filthy clothes. It's almost as if Joshua doesn't realize that Satan is even going to accuse him. He, and he's there dressed most inappropriately and thinks it's fine. Somehow he's been convinced he's innocent when he's clearly guilty. This is what Satan does. He, he, he tries to convince us of an innocence that's not really there. 1 John 1, 8 and 10 say this. He says, if we say we have no sin, we have deceived ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And if we, have, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar. And his word is not in us. Church, hear this. Without God's word in us, we are always going to be susceptible to the lies of the accuser. Whether they are, we are too guilty to go before a holy and just God, or we are innocent and don't need to repent before a holy and just God. Those are both lies. And if the word of truth is not in us, we will believe them and be separated from our holy and just God. And this is what Satan wants. He wants us to feel innocent so that we'll continue sinning. Or he wants us to feel so guilty that we can never come out of our sin that there's no point in making an effort. That's what he's wanting. But see, God's a little different in that. God wants us to feel guilty when we're guilty. Because it's only when we feel guilty that we, we turn to God seeking forgiveness. The angel of the Lord sees Joshua's guiltiness in his filthy clothes. He orders the filthy clothes removed and replaced with new ones that were immaculate and pure. This is what Jesus does when we bring our guilt to him. He removes the sin and the guilt and replaces it with the holiness. And he replaces it with righteousness. Right? Josh, 1 John 1.8, 1 John 1.10, they tell us about the lies of Satan and how he makes us feel innocent of our sin. But 1 John 1.9, nestled in there, tells us the truth and the power of Christ. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The guilt we feel for our sin should move us to confession. It should move us to repentance. should move us to seek our Lord and ask for help. Satan also wants us to feel guilty once we have been forgiven. See, God has great plans for us once we're saved. Remember, it's not just about being saved out of your sin. It's being saved for the glory of God. And he wants to use us to glorify him. And he wants to use us to bring others to know Christ. But Satan's going to bring up memories of the past. He's going to bring up what we were before Christ. He's going to bring up who we were before Christ. He's going to bring up moments in which maybe we were backslidden and kind of out of good fellowship with Christ. And he's going to use those moments and use those memories to, to try to convince us that we are not good enough for God to use us in his plan. 
Again, Satan is the king of all liars. Once God has made us clean through the work of Christ, we are clean. It is Him, God, who will do all of the work through us. We are just tools in the hands of a master craftsman at that point. No amount of misplaced guilt, no amount of self-doubt, no amount of memories of failure and past sins and, and weaknesses can ever stop God's work in your life. Jesus has chosen you. Jesus has saved you. Jesus has forgiven you. Jesus has cleansed you. Nothing can take that away. In Christ, you are no longer guilty. You are forgiven. And God wants us to feel forgiven when we are forgiven. The angel of the Lord puts this turban on Joshua's head. And that, that turban is a stone and an inscription. And again, we don't know exactly what that inscription says. And the only reference we have to it is, is Aaron out in Exodus. But the inscription on his turban said, Holy to the Lord. When Jesus saves you, you were made holy to the Lord. You are his. He makes us that way. Church, there's a lot of power in that. A lot of power in that. This whole passage, we see Joshua being moved from being completely filthy to them being cleansed. We see Joshua who was being charged have all charges dropped. We see Joshua in that movement of being cleansed and being charged, and those charges dropped, now being given a new charge to go out and do something to glorify the Lord and then a blessing for glorifying the Lord. This is what Christ does for us. He cleanses us, forgives us, charges us, and then blesses us to serve. He blesses us to do His good will. Through the work of Jesus, God has made a way for His people to overcome the accusations, to overcome the lies of Satan when it comes to our sin and to our guilt. Our guilt is, our sin is great. It, it is there. And our guilt with our sin is real. But if you are in Jesus Christ and Jesus abides in you, he has cleansed you from your sin. Through Jesus, God has given his people a way to experience the joy and the blessing that comes from being forgiven and for feeling forgiven. Today, as we go into this time of, of our call to action, this time when we go into our invitation, I'm going to ask you to, to go before a holy and just God with your guilt. In your sin, and I'm going to ask you to go before him, and I'm going to ask you to say, God, cleanse me of it. If you're a believer, this is part of living that life of repentance. If, if you're not a believer in Christ, this is a time for you to become a child of God. God will be faithful and just to forgive, just as his word has promised us. And as we move into this time, I'm going to ask you that if, that if you've been dealing with guilt 
as a believer that you know is misplaced, give it over to God. Let the forgiveness of our Lord fill you today. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for this time we have. We thank you for being in your word. We thank you for such a beautifully clear gospel message in the Old Testament that we know we are our sinners who are in need of, of cleansing. But Father, we see that, that you cleanse us. That when we put our belief in you, that when we sacrifice and surrender our lives over to you, you are good and faithful to cleanse us and to forgive us. Not of any of the works that we have done, but by the, by the work that you have done for us on the cross. Father, I pray that as we continue to study through Zechariah, you would give us more moments and more of these beautiful glimpses of the gospel in the Old Testament. Encourage us to seek you above all else. To desire your forgiveness, even in our, our momentary moments of sin. We thank you that you and through you Our guilt is removed. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.